0: Boldly going where no science show has gone before.
1: The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. And with Dave Ansell. Hello, Dave. Hi, Chris. Now, in this week's festive Christmas edition of the show, how scientists in Japan have developed a system that can read your mind and see what you're seeing just by looking at your brain activity. Also, a scientific solution to make cheap plonk taste half-decent, which could be good at my Christmas table this year. And also how scientists have used the same technology that's used to make unbreakable spectacle frames to make earthquake-proof Bridges and we'll be hearing how they've done it in just a second Helen.
2: Thanks Chris and this week it's our Christmas special with lots of questions and answers so we'll be tackling all your science questions as well as doing a bit of practical research to answer an age-old question. And now so I'm just going to finish off this champagne and then we're going to have a go
3: on the test and see if it's impaired my ability at all. Yeah an excellent
2: idea. And I wish I had been the one doing that test. But we'll find out later on whether champagne really does make you drunk more quickly. And the lucky one, Mira, got to go along and find out. But we'll be finding out later on in the show what she discovered.
4: Dave. Cheers, Helen. And in this week's Kitchen Science, we'll be showing you a neat party trick to try out over the turkey at the, at the dinner table on Christmas Day. You can create your own pressure wave. If you want to have a go, all you need is an empty plastic fizzy drinks bottle and a little bit of tape. Thank you, Dave. And if you've got a question for us, of course,
1: or you just want to say hi, you can get in touch by telephone, text, or email. The lines are open now. It's 0845 30 50 007 on the phone. You can text in 07786 20 1960. The email address is chris at the The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting
0: provider. On the web at ukfast.net.
1: This month, scientists have made an extraordinary breakthrough because they've discovered a way to see what a person is seeing just by reading their brain activity. Now, this is the work of Yoichi Miyawaki, who's a researcher at Kyoto's National Institute of Information and Communication in Japan. He and his colleagues have got a paper in the the journal Neuron this month. What they did was to make use of the premise that the retina, which is the part of the eye that turns light into nerve signals that the brain can understand, projects or sends nerve signals to different bits of the brain. And so when when the retina receives a signal, so when it sees something, the bit of the brain that it's communicating with becomes more active. And you can see that slight increase in activity if you put people in a brain scanner. So what he and his colleagues did was to put two subjects, two male volunteers, in a brain scanner and they showed them small patterns to different parts of their retina. And these patterns were uh, overlapping slightly from one pattern to the next. And so what they did was, in excruciating detail, mapped out the visual area of the brain to see which bits of the retina mapped onto which bits of the brain. And then they were able to show these people patterns, for instance a plus sign or a cross or even a square, which was a white square on a dark background, for example, and then by decoding what bits of the brain became active, their computer program could work out, therefore, what the person must have been looking at and reproduce the pictures. And in the paper, they have these extraordinary images where you can compare the pictures that their computer generated based on the brain activity and the picture the person actually looked at, and they're almost the same. So this is the first time anyone's actually done it with physically showing an image recreated just in brain waves.
4: Um, would this work with if you're imagining an image? So, if you had a very vivid dream, would that be likely to be triggering the similar sort of neurons, or is this happening very, very early in the processing?
1: No, this is exactly right, Dave, because the researchers go on and say. You don't just have to look at visual information. You could look at any aspect of brain processing with this technique because you could look at how movements are generated, for example. You could look at how colour is generated. You could look at faces. Faces are decoded in an entirely different part of the brain in the superior temporal gyrus, which is on the side of the brain adjacent to where your ear is approximately. There's a whole area of the brain just devoted to working out what face you're looking at. So they're saying you could use exactly the same technique they've developed and apply it to all different kinds of processing modalities but obviously it's early days, this is just a proof of concept, but it shows that computing and scanner technology has come on so much now that you can actually pick apart activity down at the level of almost individual clusters of nerve cells, which is pretty extraordinary.
2: Well, I'm going to take things down a peg or two from very intricate science to something that we will hopefully all be able to benefit from one day. And since the festive season is upon us, I'm sure that lots of us will be raising a few glasses of wine in celebration. I certainly will be. But uh, this week, we have news of a novel way that scientists have found to give a boost to a cheap bottle of plonk. And a revolting young table wine could be transformed into a nicely refined, well-aged tipple simply by zapping it with electricity. Now, now, you might expect that it was the French, possibly, or maybe the Australians or the Chileans or one of the, you know, well-known uh, wine-producing nations that might have come up with this new bit of wine trickery, but you'd be quite surprised to find out it was actually the Chinese. This was the brainchild of Xing Ang Zen and colleagues from the South China University of Technology in Guangzhou in China. And they're quite a relative newcomer, I must say, to the fi- world of fine wine making. I don't know about you guys, but I've certainly never tried a Chinese wine.
1: <laughs> I've had- no, never.
2: I've had Malagasy wine, and I really wouldn't recommend it necessarily. The wine... White's okay, but definitely steer clear of the red. Anyway, Zeng and his teams began experimenting with Chinese Cabernet Sauvignon wine, and what they did essentially was pass it through a tube with two titanium electrodes hooked up to an electric field, and they found that the optimum time to expose the wine to this electric field was just three minutes. No more, no less. And they don't actually yet know why this is happening. We can't quite explain what is going on with these electric fields and why it's altering the wine's chemistry, but we do know it does seem to work. They gave these wines to a team of winers, experts and they didn't obviously think that they were absolutely amazing wines but they were certainly better than they should have been these were 3 month old wines which should really be undrinkable
1: were the electrodes actually in the wine helen therefore are they electrolyzing the wine a bit like a battery almost or were they just creating a field around the wine and therefore that's a bit different isn't it
2: i think i think what they did was although i do apologize if i'm wrong on this i think it was just passing the field through the wine
4: I think they had two titanium electrodes inside a it pipe. It was inside.
2: Okay, um, sorry. And then
4: they put electricity between the two pi- uh, between the two electrodes through the wine. And okay, the great.
2: Effect. Thanks, Dave. Sorry about that. So this, they did, so it could be something to do with electrolysis. But what in, what's going on inside the, the, the wine, no matter what actually is causing it, is essentially changes in the chemistry. You've got um, various um, bitter organic acids in the wine, which is what really are making it taste fairly badly. They react with the ethanol to create things called esters, and they're fruity, nice-flavoured um, compounds that actually help the wine taste better. And that's the sort of thing that usually happens, but very slowly as the wine ages. That's why wines only really should be drunk after six months. And of course, a really good wine keeps getting better and better for decades and decades. But
1: Helen, people say, you know, if wine tastes bad, it probably tastes bad for a reason. So, should we really be trying to spruce up dodgy wine to make it taste good? Shouldn't we just go and buy decent wine? I mean,
2: I think you're quite right to some extent. I think wine connoisseurs are unlikely to say, "Hey, this is fantastic. This is, you know, a replacement for all that the wine-making skill that we've we've developed for us." thousands of years um but i could see how maybe for certain cheaper wines perhaps it would make them a bit nicer because there are people who let's face it don't want to spend more than a couple of quid on a bottle of wine um but i must say um so well they're they're trying this out in china and we'll see whether or not the chinese wines really will hit the market with this new electro wine treatment um but i would say if you're feeling a bit impatient this christmas for a tasty glass of wine please don't try this at home just
1: just red wine was it or does it work on white wine too?
2: i don't think they've tried white yet
1: May have to go out the garage later. Now, it's um, not because he drinks meths or anything, but because. <laughs> It doesn't make meth taste better, I presume. But, uh, no, he means as in you're going to do some experiments, presumably, Dave. Well, I, I wouldn't
4: say it. I, I'm sure it's... I, yeah, anyway, get yeah, on back on the subject. Now, Slightly more seriously, the destruction produced by earthquakes can be devastating in itself, but often the knock-on effects of this destruction can be even worse. For example, if an earthquake damages a bridge beyond repair, there's not just problems with people on around or around the bridge. It also means that the emergency services can't get across the bridge to help put out fires on the other side, and generally support, pe- and support people on the other side. In the longer term, of course, a lack of bridge could slow down rebuilding after the disaster and entirely ruin the economy around either side of the bridge. Now, engineers at the University of Nevada are trying to reduce this problem by using modern materials. The cause of much of the problem is that the steel that's used to reinforce the concrete in the bridges. Um, during a large earthquake, this is designed to bend to absorb some of the shaky vibration energy. This is quite effective at stopping the whole structure collapsing during the earthquake. But the problem is that this can actually cause a bridge to be damaged beyond repair and so you can't drive over it.
1: Yeah, so so it's actually all it's doing is stopping the bridge, killing people when it falls, but it's not actually
4: preserving the bridge at all yeah it's sort of um a bit like a crumple zone it it survives the earthquake without killing anyone but you wouldn't want to use a car afterwards so what's the the solution well they've been using um a kind of material called shape memory metal called nitinol this is the sort of stuff you sometimes get in glasses frames, so you can like sit on your glasses they're bent and but they'll sort of spring back to the original shape so the idea is that if instead of using steel reinforcing, you make reinforcing out of this nitinol stuff. Um, it's made out of nickel and titanium. Um, and so that when the bridge shakes a lot, um, it'll always spring back to its original shape. And because a lot of its strength is due with its original shape, it might not be as strong as it was to start with, and you might need to do a few kind of superficial repairs, but it's not going to fall down, and you might be able to drive over it carefully um, immediately after the um, the disaster, and you can recover a lot quicker. Buildings as well? um they haven't looked into this they actually with this they built a model bridge um about sort of 200 feet long and they shook it really violently so they've only looked at um bridges so far but i see no reason why you couldn't do it with buildings as well Thank you,
1: Dave. Now also what we thought would be quite fun to do this year was to ask everyone to take a look back over the previous 12 months to pick out some of the items that have been discovered this year which we thought were the most funny, fun or intriguing. So I'm going to kick off and this story came out around about February time and it tickled my fancy because I have an interest in neuroscience and how the brain works but also I have a bit of an interest in music and one thing that I was always intrigued by is how people managed to um, improvise. So if they sit down at a piano If they're an experienced musician And they can just tinkle away And they produce these beautiful sounds Which add ambiance to a setting They don't dominate But at the same time They're interesting to listen to But they also don't seem to follow The same musical patterns and rules That you associate with a classical piece of music How is that person doing that? And how are they making it all make sense? And sound good at the same time And that's what was going through the minds of a couple of American neuroscientists Alan Braun and Charles Lim They published a paper in PLOS One earlier this year Where they put a whole load of jazz pianists Into a brain scanner To find out which bits of the brain they use To do improvisation Now the way they did it was to set up a protocol That would disentangle the bits of the brain That are active just by playing any kind of music From the bits of the brain that are involved In doing improvisation So they first of all put them in the scanner Gave them a modified keyboard that they could play in the scanner and have the sound that they would be producing played back to them in headphones. They then asked them, first of all, to play some bits of music from memory, in other words, well-learned pieces of music, and this would disclose the parts of the brain that are involved in remembering music and the parts of the brain involved in actually physically generating the movements to play music. The next thing they did was to say, right, now we want you to start improvising. They re them again and then subtracted the results of the first scan from the second scan which should leave behind just those brain areas which are associated with the improvisation process and two very interesting changes emerged there was a very big reduction in the activity in a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex this is the part of the brain right at the front which is concerned with self-censorship it's a on the outside edge at the front of your brain. So if you go into a job interview or you're being asked hard questions in a radio interview, for example, and you know people are f- hanging on your every word, this is the bit of the brain you'd be activating. It's your watch what I'm saying next centre, if you like. And that was very strongly switched off in these people when they improvised. And at the same time, another bit of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex, which is in the centre of the brain but at the front, that was very strongly activated. This part of the brain is is activated if you tell people to tell a story and put themselves at the centre of it. So tell a story about yourself, where you're the focus of attention. That bit of the brain switches on. And not surprisingly, in these jazz pianists, when they're improvising, they turn off their self-censorship, they activate this region which is involved in spontaneous information about them, making themselves the focus, and that's probably how they channel this uninhibited flow of ideas and energy from the creative bits of their brain and as uh, one of the uh, scientists said they often play with their eyes closed in a distinctive personal style that transcends traditional rules rules of melody and rhythm and that looks exactly why Helen,
2: do we think this is fantastic just to think you know what's going on inside these musicians brains but do we think that there are some people who are just naturally better at that kind of thing their brains are are wired up the right way if you like and that's why they're better at um, improvising do you you think that could be the case
1: it certainly could and and in fact one of the points they make in their paper is they'd like to now also look at other kinds of artists writers poets painters even and see when they uh, show free expression whether there is the same pattern of activation because this would suggest that it's partly to do with disinhibiting yourself it's partly getting yourself in the right mindset so the creative juices can start flowing
4: cool Now, a story from earlier this year which hopes will be the start of big things to come was the news that the small California-based company called SpaceX has managed to build a space rocket and put a satellite into orbit. And this might not seem particularly impressive as governments have been doing this for 50 years, but what's new is it's been done by a private company without state support. Now it's quite a nice story that now SpaceX was started by Elon Musk who's a South African entrepreneur who made hundreds of millions by pub- from publishing software and then from PayPal which you've probably heard of which you pay things for e- eBay. Now PayPal was sold to eBay and he got loads of money and he wanted to do something interesting with it. Um, at first he thought I know it would be cool let's start a Mars program but he actually looked into this and discovered the problem is that launching stuff into space is so expensive that even his millions and hundreds of millions weren't enough to do anything interesting on Mars. So he decided that the solution to this, instead of just going into a corner and going, oh, I'll, I'll just play with my money and become a playboy, decide decided to do something about this problem. So he started, he built his own space rocket business, um, basically building space rockets, he's got a production line in California making space rockets um, his first three launches didn't work very well, the first one exploded on takeoff. the second one um, the fuel inside started sloshing about then it fell over. Hopefully with no one in, on board. Yeah, they're, they're all unmanned um, so, and so that one didn't, and the third one it, it was re- really depressing actually, it didn't quite work because he changed his spa- the second, second stage space rocket engine and it the, you, the idea is you push the first stage off and then the second stage ignites, but the, the, the first stage carried on going for longer than it should have done. So the, so, the second, um, so the first stage and second stage couldn't separate and so it crashed into the ground. But fourth time lucky, in September, he got this space rocket up into space um, and this, this can lift about half a ton into low-Earth orbit. Um, but he's, it's not where he's, he's not stopping there. Um, beginning of next year, he's trying to launch the Falcon 9, which should be able to put up to 12.5 tonnes into low-Earth orbit.
1: Wasn't there a prize? associated with doing that?
4: Um. I th- there's a prize associated with getting a person up to what's called space, which is 100 kilometres, um, but not into orbit. And there's another one with getting a person into orbit. But he's just got a, basically got a satellite up into orbit, which there aren't any prizes for. But in many ways, I think this is more important, because actually getting stuff into orbit cheaply could mean that we can do all sorts of interesting things. We can go out to the, the Mars, the rest of the world, the rest of the solar system, put up bigger, cheaper um, telescopes and find out more about the universe.
1: Yes, because Bert Rutan got the prize for first... Uh it was suborbital, but the yeah. first zero gravity type flight with spaceship one, wasn't it? Spaceship yes. one. He did that a little while back. So the next big goal is to get someone up into orbit. Helen.
2: I could tell by the grin on Dave's face that he just wishes he was the guy who was throwing things up into space. and maybe I want to build one, the
1: rocket. Maybe
2: one day he will be. I think that that could well happen. Well, I shall finish off the news this week um, with what I think was the, the best news from this year. Um, and I don't suppose any of you will be surprised at all to hear that it was the seahorses arriving in the River Thames I- in London. I think just think this was wonderful. Um, that was reported earlier on this year, I think it was Easter this year, that the Zoological Society in London had actually for the previous eight 18 months, been looking at a population of short-snouted seahorses um, living in the River Thames. And this was the first time, really, we've seen a permanent population. A few have washed in occasionally. I think there was one seen in 2004. And then not since uh, the 70s, I think. So, really, these aren't creatures we expect to see in the Thames um, and they're now known to be living there, reproducing, living in a nice little population as far um, as far um, west I think as Dagenham, so sort of coming up into the, into the river um, Blimey, see- they've
1: even gone to Dagenham I know, I don't know why they do it. <laughs> and my family are from there, it's okay I can say <laughs> <We're that. laughs>
2: of course, well, they obviously think it's great um, it's still a bit salty there because seahorses don't live in fresh water, so there's enough of a tide still coming in there, so I think it's wonderful and it was all- the reason we were allowed to announce the story and um, uh, and let everyone know they were there is because now seahorses are protected in the UK under the Wildlife and Countryside Act so you can't go and collect them, you can't mess around with them, disturb them anyways, just leave them be and I hope just be really happy and proud that uh, the, the Thames is clean enough now for these lovely creatures to live in.
1: Thank you Helen. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Helen. Uh, it's our Christmas special science phone-in so any science questions on your mind, the email address for the programme is chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
1: Now, we had an email from Ian Curzon, who said... Hi to you all. Love your show. Uh, Now, my question is, what are your top five science facts, things that will amaze us listeners so that we can brag about them down the pub, etc.? I thought that was a really terrific question, so I thought we would ask everybody for their top five facts, but also you at home. So what are the scientific facts or figures or statistics which you find most mind-boggling or most amazing? If you've got a science fact that you'd like to share with us, the email address is chris at NakedScientist dot com. Dave, got a question here for you, which has come from Alton Vandiver, and he says, "Can you
4: see space satellites with a telescope?" Um, you certainly can see satellites with a telescope. Um, looking on the web, there's a guy of definitely large satellites. You can get quite good pictures of them. Um, you can see the International Space Station in quite, all, it's quite a lot of glory. You can see all the different bits of it with a really large telescope. You can actually see, it with your naked, you see them with your naked eye. You'll be able to see stars. If you see stars which move across the star very, sky very quickly, don't have a red flashing light. So those are normally planes. But anything moving across the sky very quickly is normally a satellite. I
1: saw a couple of guys on the BBC website, actually, who... Uh, have got this tracking software that they've, got, they've, they've written themselves and some amateur telescope gear and they have got these amazing pictures of the International Space Station and it really does look like a computer game actually, how good the pictures
4: are. Yeah, and, f- and also you can sometimes see satellites which aren't supposed to be there. Um, one of my uh, housemates has got a friend who was taking photos of the sun. for He's an astronomer. And occasionally you see satellites p- going past the sun and you can actually see them in some frames of this video. And he looked, there are um, lists of all the satellites which are supposed to be there and it was one which wasn't supposed to be there so there's definitely more satellites up there than anyone will uh, admit to. Also, they
1: fool people because some of them come down into lower orbits and then go back up again, and you get these interesting iridium flares where the the iridium uh, network um, of satellites, which is telecommunication satellites, come down low in order to communicate, and then they go back up higher, park them into higher orbits uh, when they're less in demand, and it it means that they're they're using less fuel in the long run because they're not having to keep accelerating their orbit all the time. Uh, Here's an interesting question for you, Helen. A little bit saucy, this one. Uh, Mick Holmes uh, says, Why does my dog always poo... On the path and not on the grass.
2: I want to know why you asked me that question. Actually, I'm not really au fait, don't have a dog myself, and I'm not necessarily any the wiser for why this might be. Um, could be all sorts of reasons. We were discussing this before the show, maybe it was something to do with um marking his territory. Perhaps we think perhaps poo, as well as we, and lots of other urine and uh, other. Fluids like that are good for letting other dogs know where they are and if that's their territory or not. So perhaps they think that a path where other dogs have walked along, left their smells, would be a place to leave their little mark. I was wondering if maybe it thought it was a cat, because I think cats would be more likely to dump... Uh, to, <laughs> I didn't say the word dump, sorry. This is all getting very silly. To, to uh, defecate uh, on a path than on grass, because cats like to try at least to cover up their mess. Um, you know, So perhaps on a on a sandy uh, path that might be more better than on the grass. Maybe the grass is spiky and it, it doesn't like the the feeling of it that's right Up a couple of people end, on our forum know.
1: have speculated this is com forward slash forum you can put your comments or thoughts there uh dr beaver says um using occam's razor the pavement doesn't tickle its bottom when it squats but perhaps in the same way as the grass and uh, the person who calls themselves dent student says i guess it's because dogs don't have the same social cues as humans and don't consider it to be antisocial to pull on the path um and then someone points out um down there saying are you saying a uh, dense student that you do poo on the grass
2: i'd say it's pretty antisocial to poo on the grass anyway i hate treading in dog poo so anyway i hope when the dog does poo on the path you do clear it up afterwards thank you very much
4: got a quest- <laughs> i've got a question here for you chris um from ricardo um he's heard that there's some stranger liquids or waters that people like S.E.S. Special- and navy seals can use to breathe at very very um uh, breathe instead of air at very great depths underwater Do you know anything about it? Yeah, this is called liquid breathing,
1: and it's been experimented on for a little while because also there's some occasions when actually forcing gas into lungs is bad because if you've got an adult, for example, with respiratory distress syndrome, and this can also affect young young babies that are premature, the problem occurs when the lungs have a deficiency of a chemical called surfactant and because the lungs contain lots of tiny air spaces called alveoli the linings of those air spaces are kept saturated with water they're wet and water makes something called a hydrogen bond it's a sticky molecule and one molecule tries to stick onto another and this would collapse the alveoli down and make them disappear if you didn't have something there to break this water bonding that make it less sticky and this is what these surfactant molecules do they help it to to remain bigger and so When people have some kind of lung conditions, and this is premature babies don't have this stuff, adults can have certain conditions where they lack this stuff, you don't have any surfactant, and as a result the airspace is trying to collapse, and as a result it becomes very, very hard to inflate the lungs, and so you have to use very high pressures of gas being blown into you in order to keep the lungs inflated, and this can do damage. So scientists have been exploring the possibility of using fluids instead of gas under certain circumstances, and also in deep-sea divers and some of the fluids that they've been exploring are fluids that don't mix with water, so they're organic chemicals, and perfluorocarbons are the class of chemicals involved, and they've done experiments with um, chemicals with six carbon atoms in the line. That's perfluorohexane. They've also done experiments with eight carbon atoms linked together called perfluorooctanes. They haven't been done on humans. They've been actually done on sheep, which are a good model for for us, because they're mammals, they're big mammals, they have lungs quite similar to ours, so they make a good model. Um, And what... The special about these chemicals is that you can persuade lots of oxygen to dissolve and lots of gas actually of any kind to dissolve in this liquid you then pump the liquid into the lung And it then passes the oxygen into the blood, picks up the carbon dioxide and you pump the liquid back out again. And the problem with this is that lungs are made to move gas, not liquid. And so it's very, very difficult to move large amounts of liquid like this. So really, the only time it's practical is when you have someone mechanically ventilating you. In other words, moving the liquid in and out for you. Um, one place where it might therefore have a role is in things like intensive care. It might be possible to, to use it in those settings, in people with damaged lungs, to get lots of extra oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. Another situation where it might be useful is in the context of deep-sea diving. Because when you go deep-sea diving, something you're well acquainted with, Helen, there's a risk of the bends. As you go down underwater, the pressure of gas you're having to breathe in is increased from your tank by your regulator to overcome the fact that you're under pressure underwater. So you're now breathing gas, which is at much higher pressure and much higher density than gas at the surface. And this forces a lot more nitrogen into the blood. And nitrogen does not dissolve very well at all. It's very, very insoluble in water, unlike oxygen. And as a result, when you take the pressure off of the person again, the extra nitrogen that's dissolved in their tissues can come out as little bubbles and it forms bubbles in blood vessels and blocks them up and that's why you get decompression sickness, the bends. If you used a liquid in the lungs instead of gas, the liquid would not succumb to the increased compression of being down deep and therefore it would not force extra gas into solution in the same way that air mixtures would and therefore it might in theory be safer if we can overcome the other problems that are associated with it.
2: Have you seen the film The Abyss? It's one of my favourites as a diver, and they use liquid breathing. I think they put a mouse in a plastic bag, and, it, it, and that's fine that way. But um, that would be fun if that happened one day. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. Now, Christmas and New Year are a time for celebration, as we all know, and for popping open some champagne or sparkling wine. I certainly will be uh, enjoying a tipple, I think, this Christmas. But many people claim that champagne goes straight to their head, getting them more drunk more quickly than uh, non-sparkling wine. Um, we sent Mira to find out if this really is the case um, that uh, bubbles really go straight to your head by exploring the science of champagne. Fancy cracking open some champagne
3: to welcome in the new year? Well it may be worth you noting that the bubbles that make this drink go pop when you open it will get you drunk a lot faster than its wine relatives. I'm with Fran Ridout clinical research manager for the charity Saving Faces at St Bartholomew's Hospital in London. Now Fran used to be based at the University of Surrey where she looked into the effects that champagne has on our brains. How did you go about looking into the effect
5: of champagne? We used a psychometric test battery which measured reaction time, people's ability to attend to a stimulus while doing something else, Um, their vigilance, their ability to do something for a sustained time and their short-term memory. Who did you test it on and how did you go about getting your samples? Uh, We actually did the tests on volunteers' work colleagues. We had 12 people and they had two different drinks. One of the drinks was ordinary champagne and the other drink was champagne which we'd whisked all the bubbles away from with an electric blender. We had people drink both drinks on different occasions a week apart. So one week they would have champagne with bubbles. The next week they would have the champagne without bubbles, which they thought was ordinary wine. They didn't know the purpose of the experiments. Everybody did a baseline test before they'd been drinking. They then drank a measured dose of um, the champagne or degassed champagne according to their body weight. Then they did the tests again uh, 20 minutes after and 60 minutes after drinking. And what did you find? Uh, We found that the champagne with bubbles was uh, much more impairing than the champagne without. We found a difference on all the tests between when they did it before they'd drunk anything and afterwards, apart from short-term memory. With the still champagne, the only test that was impaired was a simple test of reaction time. And you also looked
3: into the actual blood levels of alcohol in the people.
5: Yes, we also took blood samples after 20 minutes um, at five-minute intervals. We found that the uh, blood alcohol levels of the people drinking the gas champagne were higher for the first 20 minutes, suggesting that it got into the bloodstream a lot quicker. Okay, well you have actually
3: got some of these psychometric tests set up today and now I had a go on two of them earlier this afternoon just to give an idea and get the score for what my ability is like without alcohol. And now, so I'm just going to finish off this champagne and then we're going to have a go on the test and see if it's impaired my ability at all.
5: Yeah, an excellent idea.
3: OK, well, we actually have um, two of those psychometric tests. What am I supposed to be doing here again?
5: Well, the idea is to keep the centre of the cross on top of the ball as the ball moves randomly from side to side across the screen. The other part of the test is that you have to watch out for yellow balls which will appear in the corners every now and then and as soon as you see one of those you have to click the button on your mouse. OK, so I'm just having a go on this test
3: again now and trying to follow this grey ball that's moving around with my green cross. So that one's finished. You've got both of my schools up here and is there a difference
5: between before and after I drank this champagne? Uh, Well, there are differences. um, In your um, tracking... You've actually got better, but that, of course, is a practice effect. And when we did our study, um, we made the volunteers do it um, half a dozen times before they started to uh, get rid of that as far as possible. But the more important component of the test is your um, ability to react to peripheral stimuli, the yellow balls, and your time there is actually longer. Now, we've also got this second
3: test set up, which is going to test my movement. So I'm just going to start this now, but can you just remind me again what the rules are?
5: Um, This tests reaction times in two parts. There is a semicircle of lights uh, which come on and you have to move your finger as quickly as possible uh, from a a resting point um, to turn those lights off. So it has two components. One is uh, how quickly you lift your finger up to say, oh, I've seen the light. And the other is how quickly you can get your finger over to put the light out.
3: Okay, so that's finished
5: now, and all the lights have come on, so I think I'm meant to stop. Um, How did I do here, Fran? Well, you didn't do particularly well. Your reaction time to the lights was nearly 100 milliseconds slower. Uh, Your score at baseline was 362, and after you'd had your drink, it was 452 milliseconds. 100 milliseconds might not sound very much, but um, if you're driving a car, it's extra time it takes before you put your feet on the brake, and you could have gone quite a few metres down the road um, in addition to your normal brake time. So I guess the key question
3: now really is why this happened. Why does the presence of bubbles in alcohol make it affect our brains quicker?
5: Well, in order to affect the brain, uh, it's necessary for the alcohol to get into the bloodstream. The way this happens is, obviously, you drink the alcohol which goes into your stomach. Not much of it is actually absorbed in the stomach. About 80% of it is absorbed when it carries on into the small intestine. Uh, The most likely explanation for champagne having a more intoxicating effect, therefore, is that it alters gastric emptying, the way that the alcohol or drink goes from the stomach to the intestine in some way. One possible mechanism is that it alters the way the pyloric valve um, opens or makes it open more frequently because that's the part that allows the contents of the stomach to carry on its pathway into the intestines. Alternatively, it could be that the alcohol is absorbed as you're drinking it through the nose and through the mouth. That's much less likely. It's almost certainly something that happens um, once the alcohol gets into your stomach.
2: So alcohol from fizzy wine actually gets into your bloodstream quicker and it really does get you more drunk more quickly if that's what you're after. That was Fran Ridout who's now at St Bart's explaining the science of insobriety to our very own Mira Lingham.
1: Thank you very much, Helen. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. It's our Christmas phone-in extravaganza. So if you've got a science question that you'd like us to answer for you, the email address for the programme is chris at thenakedscientist.com. And don't forget, if you've got a science fact that, that you think is totally gobsmackingly amazing, tell us it. We've heard from Lee E, and he says his number one is E equals MC squared.
0: Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at
1: nakedscientists.com. It's The Naked Scientists. Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. Now, Helen, what are your five facts? We were asked by Ian Curzon for the top five facts that would wow out people down the pub.
2: Well, this is such a great question, and I have to say, five is really hard. Thanks very much for that. But uh, my first one, I think, is that in the dot of a 12-point letter I... There are more protons than there are seconds in a half a million years. I thought that was quite quite which mind-boggling. Is, it
1: just goes to show the order of scale, there, doesn't it? You yeah, know, exactly. How small we are right up to the macro, Absolutely, the universal yeah. scale. In
2: fact, that leads on to my second one, which I think is also great, which is if we made a scale model of the universe um, and we made planet Earth the size of a pea, um, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, would be 16,000 kilometres away.
1: Which just goes show how big the universe is. Exactly, it's how a big, big the universe place. is. I yeah, mean, basically. obviously, you
2: could do that to, in any sort of in any scale. I just think that's fantastic. Just and to your think. number three. Just how big it is. Number three um, is biological. I've come back to the world of life and um, slightly more esoteric. But I love the fact that when caterpillars munch on plants, the plants themselves have evolved to emit a chemical, a smell that attracts other bugs that come and eat the caterpillars. Which just—it's such a crazy loop. I think that's awesome. And we think of plants sometimes as being a bit kind of boring and dull. They don't do anything. But my god. They're amazing. They're brilliant. So there you go. That I think that's wonderful. Uh, my fourth point, my fourth fact is if you were to take Mount Everest um, and plonk it in the deepest part of the ocean... It wouldn't stick out of the surface. And, in fact, you'd have to dive down over two kilometres to actually reach the top of Mount Everest. So, you know, the oceans really are awesome. I know that. We know that. Um, that fact, I think, tells it all. Um, and my final fact is, uh, well, there's all sorts of lovely statistics associated with blue whales, but I think maybe the nicest one. They're the biggest hearts in the world. Their hearts weigh half a tonne, um, and that's about the same weight as a mini car, which I just think is fantastic. It's so also the are. same
1: size is a volkswagen beetle i think it's isn't beetle, it you could, yeah. you could almost drive a car down the biggest blood vessel in some way i think you can, can crawl journey. down
2: them yeah you certainly could crawl down them yourself so drive, they a are awesome. drive a small car drive my daughter's little, toy car a little car but there they are <laughs> such great creatures i think all the facts about blue whales are brilliant
4: now in this week's kitchen science ben and i looked at the ultimate lazy scientist solution to putting candles out on the other side of the room without even having to get up but first which freezes quicker warm water or cold water
6: Hello and welcome to Kitchen Science. This week we're attempting to explore why warm water might freeze quicker than cold water. Now I have spent days putting different combinations of warm water in a large cup and warm water in a small cup and different size ice cubes. And for me, the cold water always freezes quicker. Dave, you're the kitchen science guru. You must have found something different, yeah?
4: Afraid not. I, I again spent a couple of days freezing lots of different things. I tried deonized water, I tried Cambridge water, I tried boiled water, warm water, cold water. And as far as I can tell, cold water freezes quicker than hot water. <laughs> but Chris said
6: last week that this week's Kitchen Science would be finding out why warm water should freeze quicker than cold water. It sounds illogical, but I understand there are some situations where it does actually work.
4: Well, I have heard from some quite reputable sources that you can get it to work, but I'm afraid I can't. So instead, we're going to do a different kitchen science. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had this problem, Ben. Uh, if you've been sitting at a table and there's a candle at the other end of the table and you can't be bothered to go over to the candle to put it out, and you'd really like a way of being able to put out the candle remotely. This sounds like a very
6: typical Christmas situation where you've stuffed yourself so full of food that you just can't be bothered to get up and blow the candle out.
4: Yeah, that's pretty much it,
6: yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you have some kind of long-range candle-blowing-out technique for us, do you?
4: That's the plan, yeah. All you need for this experiment is a candle, obviously, a lemonade bottle, a big two-liter lemonade bottle, and a little bit of tape. So how are we going to set this up? Okay. well, to be honest, it would work with just the empty lemonade bottle, but it's very, very hard to aim. So we're going to make some sights on this lemonade bottle. If you look very closely at a lemonade bottle, you'll notice there's a line running along it where the two halves of the mould were pushed together. And what we want to do is use this and make it a bit more obvious by sticking a piece of tape at each end of this line. So you can line them up and use them as sights. Okay. so let's get some tape. So we want to end up with a lump in the middle, so I've just stuck the middle of the tape to itself, with leaving two sticky bits at the ends. I'm just going to stick that on the line. Now, the sight isn't quite in the middle of the lemonade bottle, so you've always got to aim slightly high. So what I'm going to do is aim slightly above the top of the candle, try and hold the lemonade bottle quite securely, and then hit it in the middle with one hand, or holding it the other hand on the other side so it doesn't wobble too much when I hit it. And it might take a couple of goes. We'll just see what happens.
6: Nothing's happening at all, Dave. You're, you're just making a loud
4: noise. Yeah, it does take a bit of practice. <laughs> so you're
6: about, uh, you're about a metre away from the candle. Is it not easier to be a bit closer?
4: Yeah, the closer you are, the easier it is to aim, fundamentally. You can do it from up to two or three metres away, but the aiming is a right pain.
6: <laughs> well, obviously the aim is a problem, Dave, because you haven't managed to do it yet. Give me a few tries and we'll see what happens. <laughs> OK, so once again, Dave's lining up the bottle and hitting the side. Oh, that time the candle flickered, but it certainly didn't go out, so he must be getting quite close. That time it really did flicker. We get, must be getting... Yay! <laughs> so you were about a metre, just under a metre away, and all you did was hit the side of
4: your bottle, and it clearly blew out that candle. How does that work? Okay, to show what's going on a bit better, what I'm going to do is fill a bottle with smoke and try and do the same thing. Okay,
6: so you have another bottle. This one doesn't have sights on it. And in fact, that's got some water in the bottom. How's water going to help you put smoke in there, Dave? I'm
4: going to put in some dry ice, which is solid carbon dioxide. And if you put dry ice in water, as the carbon dioxide boils, it takes with it quite a lot of water vapour. And when that meets the air, it tends to condense into droplets. Basically, fill the bottle with a small cloud. Okay, so we're filling the bottle with water vapour, and this should
6: hopefully demonstrate things for us. You have a a polystyrene tub full of pellets of dry ice, and as soon as you drop them in, they bubble like mad, don't they, Dave?
4: You've probably seen this in um, pop videos. It's the stuff they use to make smoke on the ground in pop videos.
6: Uh, Could this also be what they have for mad
4: scientists,
6: violently bubbling drinks?
4: Yeah, it's always the same thing. (laughs) Well, I suppose
6: that mad scientists' violent drinks seem to uh, suit us some way, but we've put a handful in now, and it's pouring out of the top. That is
4: totally opaque now. It's just full of vapour. Yeah, that's what I was hoping to achieve. Now, if I squeeze the bottle more gently than I was before...
6: Well, we're getting little puffs of this water vapour out of the top.
4: If you look very closely, sometimes you can see little rings coming upwards quite fast. So it's really like you're, you're blowing smoke rings using this bottle. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Okay, so if I squeeze the bottle, that squeezes a bit of fast-moving air up out of the neck. And this meets the slow stationary air from outside the bottle. Now, if you've ever watched water in a stream, when you get fast-moving water um, meeting slow-moving water, you get an edgy, a little swirl of water.
6: Yes, you get little spirals all along the place where the two meet.
4: Yeah, that's right. Now, the um, fast-moving air is meeting slow-moving air, but all the way around a ring. So you get a ring of eddy or a ring of a vortex, it's called a ring vortex. So rather than a
6: sort of two-dimensional eddy where it looks like it's going in a, a little circle, this works all the way round the neck of the bottle and you get a donut shape, a smoke ring.
4: Yeah, so you get a smoke ring. And the really neat thing about smoke rings or ring vortices is that if you imagine the eddy going around it, if you imagine the eddy on the right-hand side, that's going to be blowing the left-hand side of the ring upwards... If you imagine the eddy on the left-hand side, that's going to be blowing the right-hand side of the ring upwards. So the whole thing gets blown by its own wind forwards and up and away. So it will travel a long way. So it sort of propagates
6: itself by nature of its very shape, really. So what's this got to do with blowing out a candle over a long distance?
4: Well, basically, when you hit the bottle really hard, you create a very fast-moving smoke ring. with no smoke in it, so a ring vortex, which will travel across the room until it hits a candle and there's enough wind in it to blow the candle out. And this is why you have to
6: aim so carefully, because it's a relatively small ring that you're firing out. It's not like you're just going... (gasps) ..and pushing lots and lots of air past.
4: Yes, you're right. It's this little disturbance which will move through the air several metres. Fantastic.
6: So there you go. If you're at home with a candle on the table and you just can't be bothered to get up, grab yourself a plastic bottle, make some sights on it, and then spend a good 10 or 15 minutes working out exactly how to aim it to blow out the candle from the other side of the room. That's it for Kitchen Science this week. We wish you a very Merry Christmas, and we'll be back with more next year.
4: Thanks, Ben, and it was a very long-winded way to avoid getting up, I'm sorry. Um, We'll be back in 2009 with a fresh batch of kitchen science, but if you want to do a science experiment before then, we've got loads of kitchen science experiments to do on our website at www.thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, all one word. Thank you, Dave. Uh, if you've got some science facts for us, of course,
1: we're asking for your top science facts. Send them in, chris at com. We've heard from Kevin, who's on the A12. He has two top science facts, he tells us. He says a picosecond is to a second what a second is to 30,000 years, which puts that in perspective. He also points out, and this is an amazing fact, the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun, but the sun is 400 times further away, so we get a perfect eclipse. What a fantastic fact
2: what are your facts chris we want to know what we want to know what really makes your brain go wow
1: well i was thinking about this earlier today and and i wrote the top of my list that the the human heart will beat about 40 million times every year of your life and if you work out the weight of blood that it pumps around your body it's lifting about seven tons of blood a day and if you top that up over a lifetime that's about two very large aircraft carriers that your heart has lifted in terms of the weight of blood it's pumped in a lifetime, which is pretty fantastic when you think of the work that nature's polymers are doing. Evolution has given us a heart that can do something, so much work for so long and work so faultlessly in the vast majority of people.
2: We should look after our hearts for asking it to do all that work as well.
1: My second fact was the age of the universe because I just find it mind-boggling that we can say the universe we live in is about 13.7 billion years old and we can date that and we know that that was the moment when our universe popped into existence, begging the question, well, what went before? What's, it, what's this universe which is expanding, expanding into? Are there other universes? And I, I just find the whole thing a bit spine-tingling, and that's why I like that fact. My number three was that scientists reckon, conservatively, there are about 10 to the 22 stars in the known universe. That means there are 10 to the 22 stars, possibly a bit like our sun, many of them a bit different of course, but that means the prospect of finding another system like the system we're in with our Earth at the right distance from the sun, with liquid water and the right recipe for life, it doesn't seem so unlikely when you think there are one followed by 22 zeros after it. Opportunities for that to possibly happen—that's like kind of, a pretty good odds. That's really
2: it? cool. And it kind of ties into my fact as well, the one about how far away the first star would be. Because if that's just the first one, at sixteen thousand kilometres, if the Earth was the size of a pea, how on earth are we ever to get our heads around how? how far away all the other ones are. That's
1: awesome. Now, my fourth fact is something that I've I've always had tremendous respect for, which is that I share, and everyone in this room shares, about 60% of your genes with a banana. Not because we're particularly veg- vegetable-prone, uh, but because the genetic code, it doesn't matter whether you're E. coli or a human being, you have exactly the same genetic code running in you in other words, you can take a gene out of a jellyfish, put it into E. coli, and E. coli will glow green like the jellyfish did because the, the genes that work in us work in, in bacteria, which shows we all came from, in evolution, a, a common ancestor somewhere. And my final fact is that can you guess what the fastest living creature on Earth is? should be a cheetah,
2: I wouldn't say cheetah, but probably actually a whale or something. A dolphin.
1: Guinness <laughs> Book of Records for the world's fastest creature is a bacterium. And it's Delo Vibrio, and it moves at 60 body lengths a second. And it does oh, that. but
2: it's tiny though, isn't it?
1: Yes, but it's all relative, isn't it? Si- size is important. If you're a bacterium, you wouldn't expect it to be able to compete with a cheetah, because cheetah's a little bit bigger. But 60 body lengths every second. I mean, if, th- if that was an aeroplane, it would be flying at incredibly fast speeds, which I find absolutely amazing. It does it with a propeller, one of, uh, with a little propeller called a flagellum, which is sort of nature's propellers, tiny proteins that whip along and force the bacterium along. They're actually predatory bacteria. They eat, they invade and eat other bacteria.
2: Sounds nasty. Can we harness that energy? I think bacteria energy. That'd be great. What do you reckon?
1: I reckon. Thanks, Helen. This is The Naked Scientists. at Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Helen Scales. It's our science Christmas phone extravaganza. If you have a science question for us, the email address is chris at On the way, this week's question of the week, when we'll find out whether you should scoff all your Christmas goodies in one go, on one day, or whether you should pace yourself and maybe enjoy them over the subsequent two or three weeks.
0: Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
2: You're listening to Naked Scientists, and now it's time to invite the lovely as ever Diana O'Carroll back into the studio for our question of the week. Hello, Diana. Hello, Helen. Well, this week
7: I've been scoffing down literally mountains of chocolate in the name of science for this question.
8: Hi, I'm Marie from Harrogate in North Yorkshire. My question is, this Christmas, when I get loads and loads and loads of chocolate for Christmas, will it be better for me to eat it all at once, or will it be better for me to eat maybe about five or so a day? Not that I'd plan to, of course.
7: So, to have a Merry Christmas binge, or stretch it out over the holiday.
8: My name is Linda Morgan. I'm a professor of nutritional endocrinology at Surrey University. Okay, so better to eat your chocolates all in one go, or a few at a time? Well, the short answer is that it doesn't actually make any difference. The extra calories will be the same in each situation. The only effective way to prevent weight gain is to not eat the extra chocs in the first place, I'm afraid. Evolutionarily, we evolved for feast and famine, and we needed to build up all the body fat that we should have got in the feast times to see us through the famines. However, if you do eat all your chocs in one go and you felt queasy afterwards, then you're probably less likely to build up a sort of chocolate habit that lasts well into the new year. On the other hand, if you eat a few chocs each day, you may well end up with a habit that is quite hard to break in the new year. So if you have to eat chocolates, have them all in one go and make yourself sick. (laughs)
7: So it turns out you can't fool your intestines into missing a few calories by overloading them. What a shame. Well, next time on Question of the Week, we'll be looking at things from outer space.
1: Hello, my name is John Wilson. I live in Zeist in the Netherlands, near Utrecht. And my question this week is related to something that I heard previously on The Naked Scientist and was to do with lots of rubbish falling to Earth from outer space and I wondered whether they'd found any life in the rubbish that are forced to earth.
7: So, are there any fossils floating around in space? Let us know what you think by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com or by writing it on our forum. That's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And as a special Christmas treat, we've uploaded a whole year's worth of Question of the Week to iTunes, so you can download those now at any time.
1: Thank you very much, Diana, and thank you for a wonderful year of Question of the Week. That's Diana O'Carroll, and she'll be back in the new year with more fantastic questions.
0: Laying the facts bare, I say. The Naked Scientists.
1: This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Helen Scales and Dave Ansell. John's on the line, he's got a question. Hi, John. Hello there, Chris. What do you want to ask Dave?
4: Um... Yes, it's just a question about light. Uh, I just wonder whether it ever decays. You know, uh, you hear about um, light years in space and light travelling hundreds and hundreds of light years, or thousands or millions of light years. So, does the light is, go on it, forever, or, or
1: does it? So, does the light go on forever, or does it,
0: does it eventually peter uh, out? Does it go out? on
4: forever? Is it the frequency? Uh, can we ever
0: amplify the frequency of light so we can see very much detail on what we can see, or is it just
8: optically? Uh, You know, we lose telescopes, don't we? We've got the Hubble Space Telescope.
1: Sure. Okay, well, let's find out, John. I've also got a question to add to that, Dave, which is an email from Hunter Wilson
4: who says, Is there a limit to how light, uh, how bright light can be? Okay, these two are actually slightly um, related. Basically, light will carry on going for an awful, awful long time. As far as we, the, the photons which left, which were created at the end of the Big Bang, that's when. All, start off with during the Big Bang, there was a big soup of um, protons and electrons, and as soon as the electrons um, cut kind of got trapped by the nuclei of the atoms. The universe went transparent. There have been photons which have been travelling since then, which is about 13.6 billion, 13.7 billion years ago. Um, they, they reach us as part of the cosmic microwave background radiation, and they, they've carried on going. What they have done is, because the universe is expanding, one way of thinking about it is that they've been stretched, so their wavelength has got longer. They've moved further to, further um, red. They've become more and more red. It's called redshift, um, which is the reason why the sky is black, because if there was none of this effect, then um, the, you'd see the, the effect of the Big Bang. It's incredibly bright, um, in fact, gamma rays being emitted all around us, and the sky would be bright white, in fact, bright oh, X-ray, really. Um, and But because the universe has expanded so much, these photons have been stretched, so they're actually in the microwave region. So the photons will carry on going forever, but they can change their, frequent, their wavelength. Is there a limit to how um, bright light can be? Um, the only one which I could have found possibly is that if you get to incredibly, incredibly bright lights, photons will actually start to scatter off each other Um, People have suggested that in order to be able to just see this effect, um, you'd need an exawatt laser. That's a billion, billion um, watts of energy, so a billion nuclear power stations being funnelled into probably something the size of a cubic millimetre. Then you might see photons, instead of just going straight past each other, bouncing off each other, at which point then they'll start bouncing off each other and you won't actually be able to get much brighter. you would probably get a lot brighter than that, but there would be a limit somewhere beyond that. Now, Mike Kant, who goes by the name Tarquin of sailing,
1: says... uh, uh, how far back can we observe in the universe, both in terms of distance and
4: time? The limit is um, this point at which the universe became transparent, which is about um, 400,000 years after the Big Bang, um, because before that, um, the universe was got free electrons in it, and electrons interact with light very strongly. So the light just hit an electron very soon, and it essentially stopped. So that's the limit that we can see back. And,
1: uh, and Ali and Steve, sorry to pound you with these Dave but you're talking about light we might as well carry on Ali and Steve uh, listening in Australia and they say could, is there an antimatter equivalent to light because we have matter and antimatter you put the two together they cancel out does the same thing apply to light
4: um, in some senses it does um, there is an antimatter um, equivalent to a photon it's another photon if you have two photons with exactly the opposite phase they can cancel each other out um, and as far as we know that is uh, all you need to, that the, the photon is its own antiparticle
1: Thank you, Dave. Um, Helen, quick question here for you. This is from Nigel Edmonds, and he says, what do earwigs eat?
2: Earwigs, unfortunately, no, fortunately, don't eat our brains. I think that's a bit of a wives' tale, isn't it? That they crawl in your ear and eat your brains. And um, They eat all sorts of stuff. They can eat plants, they can eat, they tend to kind of yeah, dig out sort of dead things. They're really omnivores, essentially, so um, uh, plants, flowers, other animals, other insects, but um, I think that we can best basically be rest assured that they don't eat our brains
1: which is good news. Good news. Uh, Dave, um, this is this is your opportunity to tell us what your five fabulous facts are. We've heard from everyone else. What
4: are your five facts that are going to wow us out? Well, quite a lot of my facts have been quite related to the show so far. Uh, my first one was that light travels at 299,792 kilometres every second, so stuff which is hitting your eye is going ridiculously fast, which I think is quite incredible. The other one, again, related to the show, is that light from the Andromeda galaxy, which you can see with your naked eye, has been travelling for two and a half million years just to get... Get your eye. Third one was that some of the static your TV picks up, which is actually the cosmic mic, some of it is the cosmic microwave background radiation, which I was talking about earlier, has been traveling since 400,000 years after the Big Bang, so for 13.7 billion years without hitting anything, and then it hits your radio, uh, and then into something a bit more down to earth. Um, the, a ter- typical hurricane uses the same amount of energy as exploding 8 billion tonnes of TNT. So that's pretty powerful. Which I think is quite incredible, just the sheer power of nature. And then just for what humans can do, the fact that a modern um, semi- modern processor has got 580 million transistors on them, some of them 2 billion. But 35 years ago, the first processor only had 2,500. Two, two and, and I just think the advance is incredible.
1: My first computer, not that long ago, 20 years ago, had 32k of RAM. Isn't that amazing? You've got computers with 32 gigs RAM. Now, hello. we've got a question here for you. This is very, very brief from Mark Stipetic, who says, why are flies so difficult to swat? Do they just have very fast reactions, or is there some other factor at work?
2: Well, there's actually a couple of different things. I mean, you're quite right. Flies are really hard to, to swat. Um, I think maybe if you cool them down, that might be a better way of actually catching them. But I've never not tried that. Not very practical, Not very practical. Cool um, your
1: entire house down exactly. just so you I'm can catch them. squirt
2: fly. them with a jet of cold. No, that doesn't work. But anyway, um, it's partly to do with their eyes. They've got incredible eyes, not just a single eye like we have but they have um, multifaceted compound eyes so they're collecting light from all different parts of the room so they can really see all around them so they can definitely see you coming but um, another reason which was actually just come up uh, this year in a study from Michael Dickinson of the California Institute of Technology and they discovered using incredibly high speed video cameras that in fact just before they uh, they take off um, flies actually um, adjust their position so that they actually jump in the right way so they can work out what's coming at them and from what direction so they can actually hear um, you kind of approaching with your uh, with your swatter through as it swishes here through I'll the see air. as well um, or oh, presumably they can see as well. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and by making that calculation of what's coming at them, they adjust their position of their legs so that when they do decide to take off, if they do decide, sometimes they actually change their mind and they actually till change position about to get ready to go. And then they might suddenly decide, oh, actually, I'm not being hit after all, so they don't go. But they do kind of maneuver themselves so they're ready to go in the right direction when they do take off, which is just incredible. And it's is incredibly quick. This is the only the only reason we've only got this now is because we've now got such high speed cameras to actually track these movements to show them positioning themselves um, in space so that they uh, they actually you know take off and fly off in a direction that you weren't expecting maybe and um, it's gone before you get a chance to to aim again so they really are awesome creatures and you may not like them but they are really quite incredible
1: Yeah, fly spray, DDT, that's the answer <laughs> Nasty I stuff Thanks, Helen. Right, well, that's it for The Naked Scientist for 2008, and I have to say a very big thank you to our absolutely superb production team here at this end. That's Ben Vowsler, Dave Ansell, Mira Senthalingam and Diana O'Carroll. We're back in 2009 with more Naked Scientist shenanigans, but we do have a couple of Christmas presents for you to enjoy while we're away. So if you check for an update on Christmas Day, you'll be introduced to our first foray into video podcasting with Science from the Sporan, in which the inimitable Dr Ernest Otherford you'll work it out, takes you on a kitchen science experiment, an adventure with a difference. Also next week, we'll have an episode from a brand new podcast we're launching, which is called Naked Archaeology. And in this episode, Diana O'Carroll will be exploring, amongst other things, some mysterious mummified fetuses that were found alongside the body of King Tutankhamun in his pyramid. So, I hope you enjoy all of that. In the meantime, we hope you have a terrific Christmas and New Year. Thank you very much for listening to us this year. We really value your support and please do keep sending in the great questions. That's to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a great Christmas, take care, and goodbye. The Naked
0: Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.